I want to start off by thinking about kind of the, perhaps the two things we look for in doctors. And one thing is that we want them to have skills that allow them to take care of us and look at our health and fix what's wrong with us to, to the best they can. We also want them to have a second thing. If they only had that, you probably wouldn't recommend them. I mean, you might, because you, you might say, this doctor, I mean, he knew exactly what he was doing. He got, you know, prescribed the right thing to me, told me exactly what was wrong, but he had terrible bedside manner. You know, so those are the two things we look for. We don't want, just want them to be skilled and knowledgeable. We also want them to be kind and compassionate and patient and gentle and willing to listen. And so we look for these two things. We want doctors who have skill and doctors who have good bedside manner. And so we don't only uh, value what they know and can do, but what they're like, how they treat us, how they talk to us, how they listen to us. And uh, you might think the same thing with other occupations as well. Your dentist might be like, yeah, they, I mean, I guess you maybe hope the dentist doesn't talk to you too much because it's always like, how's your summer? Ah, bye, you know. <laughs> but you want a dentist who's not just cold and kind of mean and like kind of yells at you like, are you flossing enough? And, you know, gets down on you. And the same thing you could say of teachers. A teacher, you want a teacher to be knowledgeable and you want them to know how to teach um, but you also want them to be kind. Like, can they build a rapport with you? Can, do they actually nice? Or are they just very grumpy and just saying, here's the stuff, I know how to tell it to you, but I don't really care about you at all. Or a coach, like a basketball coach or a baseball coach or something that it's like, well, we want them to know how to coach us to have skills in the game, but we also want them to be nice to us. Like, I actually want to hang out with this coach. And so we have these two things that we look for in people. We have their competencies, you know, their skills, their knowledge, and also their character, they both matter. And today, we're uh, finishing up our four-week series on loving our neighbors. I believe the last time we had a sermon on this was on the 13th of February, so we had a little break, but now we're doing the fourth and final message um, in Love Your Neighbor. And when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment, he decided to give two. So the first uh, and primary greatest commandment is, uh, love the Lord your God, uh, above all else. But then secondly, he says, is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. In this series, we've been asking, kind of literally, let's take the second commandment literally, uh, love your neighbor. What would it look like to love those people right outside of our door? And actually, I'm going to pass these around. I think if, even if you have one of these, um, just keep it today because it's going to be kind of a visual um, for what we're talking about. And then if you already filled one out or have, don't want another one, just throw it out, recycle it. Um, but this uh, picture of our neighborhood, the middle is you, and then the outsides are everybody who's around you, and then uh, you can see, like, okay, do I, the four, the, uh, what is it, three, six, eight houses around me, do I know those people's names? Do I know what they do? Do I know how many kids they have? Do I know how long they've been there? You know, so there's information at the top that you can think about. And I want you to have the visual of this map uh, in your head as we go uh, through this today. And I'll, uh, it'll become clear in a little bit. Okay. So, what this letter that we're reading from, First Thessalonians, um, it's Paul, the Apostle Paul, who had a radical conversion to Jesus. He was like, this Jesus thing, we've got to stop this. And he's dragging Christians out of their houses and throwing them in chains. And, you know, he's persecuting Christians. And then he has a radical encounter with Jesus where it's just he makes a 180-degree 100 degree turn and starts going a different way. Like, Jesus is Lord before he's trying to stop people from saying that, and now he starts saying that. He writes, he went to Thessalonica, you can read about it, I believe it was Acts 17. 
either 16 or 17 is the first time uh, Paul goes to Thessalonica to talk about Jesus. And you can read right before that, we read in here how he said, you know, we were, we were mistreated in Philippi, and that's the record in, I think it's at 16 or 17, Acts 16 or 17, where he goes from Philippi, where they have some problems, and he goes to Thessalonica and talks to the people there. And he's writing this letter to uh, his um, to Thessalonica because uh, one of his uh, guys that he's mentoring, um, they sent him to Thessalonica. He comes back to Paul and he gives them this report about how things are going with the church in that town. And they were kind of worried because they had heard that they were having some trouble, that the church was having trouble with other people that were there and kind of mistreating them, persecuting them. So he's thinking... Oh, did, was that all for nothing? Did we go there and they believed and then they fell away from this pressure? But then you can read about it later in chapter 2, 17 to chapter 3, 13 that he talks about, we got this report and we're just so glad to hear about your faith. You stayed faithful. You stayed hoping in Jesus even though you're experiencing this difficulty, this persecution for your faith. So that's the context he's writing to them in this situation. And there's we're going to take this passage in three parts. The first one is chapter 1 verses 2 through 10. And this is really describing what happened when the gospel was proclaimed in Thessalonica. So it's chapter 1 verses 2 through 10 is what happened when the gospel was proclaimed in this town. And Paul starts off saying, we're praying for you guys and every time we pray for you, we're giving thanks for you. We're mentioning you in our prayers. We're praying for you and thanking God. It says uh, in verses 2 to 3, he says, we're remembering your faith, love, and hope. They're, They're having these works produced by faith that they're, they have this faith in Jesus and now it's, it's changed in their life and the object of their faith is their Lord Jesus Christ. But they also have this labor that's coming out of love. The object of their love is other people that they've believed in Jesus and now they're loving other people. But they also have this hope, this steadfastness of hope in the final glory that will be theirs when Jesus returns and the object of their hope is Jesus. And then in verse 4 he says, uh, you know, we're praying all these things for you. Why? Verse 4, for or because we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And so we're praying for you because we know God has chosen you. And how how does he know God has chosen them? First part of verse 5 says this, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And so he knows that they're chosen by God really because they chose God. You heard the gospel, you turned to God, and we know you're chosen by God because that happened, that you, uh, God did a work in your life, and the only reason you chose him is because he already had chosen you. And they would, when it comes to our salvation, God is always the first uh, actor and the initiator of it, is that he says, I know that God's chosen you because you put your faith in Jesus. When the gospel came, you had this conviction and you turned to to Jesus and trusted in Him. And then in verse, the rest of verse 5, he says, And you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the, holy, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And so there wasn't only that uh, the gospel came on them with power and the Holy Spirit and a full conviction of like, we really believe this. We really believe what you said, Paul. But then their way of life changed. They became imitators of Paul and his companions that he's traveling with. And he says, you know what kind of men we were. You became imitators of us. And he says, well, how are you imitating us? Because you received the word in affliction and the joy of the Holy Spirit. And we might think, 
those words really never should be next to each other. Affliction and joy. If I'm afflicted, how can I be joyful? And if I'm a joyful, that means I'm not being afflicted. But Paul says, I know that this is for real, that God has worked in your life because you were experiencing this affliction because of your faith. You're being persecuted. People don't like you. They're mistreating you. And yet you have this joy alongside of, like, you know, you can do whatever you want. I still have joy. You can't take that away. And so they experience the power of the Holy Spirit opening their hearts to God with clarity and conviction. They, they said, yes, Jesus, we believe He is the, the King of this new kingdom and He's our Savior. But they also had this affliction because other people weren't thrilled about this change in their life. They're being ridiculed, harassed, rejected, criticized, and hated. And you could imagine how after a while, if you're experiencing that, it would be easy to start questioning uh, whether Jesus is worth it. Was that experience we felt, was that what we felt when Paul was telling us about Jesus, was that real? Or did, is he just a good speaker? And so we got you know, worked up because he's a good speaker. Or did we all just kind of you know, buy into it because we were looking for something to believe in. It's like, was that really real? Like, this is, my life is hard, and people don't like me because of Jesus. Like, was that a real experience I had? Or you might have other reasons that you question it. And Paul reminds them, when you came to know, of how they came to know Jesus, I'm thanking God for when you came to know him, saying, it was the real deal. You really had an experience. God chose you. And they've been this, become this example to the region. They have this example of faith in the midst of suffering and with the joy of the Spirit. And verse 8 says that this report uh, about them has gone forth everywhere in the region to all these other people are hearing about it. And it's kind of been like this this rock got dropped in the pond and now it's rippled out from that region. And Thessalonica was this place that had, there's a lot of roads that went through it, connecting it to other places. And there's a lot of ships there. And so it would be very easy for news to spread from that place because people are traveling through there and going uh, back and forth. And what ha- we can ask, well, okay, what, well, what happened? What's this report? Verses 9 through 10. This is what people are hearing. It says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God, the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so the report of what happened in Thessalonica has spread Paul showed up, he started talking to people about Jesus, people who were committed uh, to a different religion. He starts talking to them about Jesus, and they had a whole different set of gods than Paul, but he told them this good news about Jesus, and then a miracle happens. They actually believe it. The Spirit of God opened their hearts to Jesus. They believed with this full conviction, and they turned from their false gods they were worshiping, and they turned to trust in Jesus and wait for him with hope. And so this little neighbor sheet I gave you, the reason I wanted to give you this, so you think about your neighborhood and the people you know. What Paul just described here, that could be your neighborhood. That could happen in your neighborhood. Or this could happen in your family. Think about, okay, here's me and I've got all these family members around me. What Paul just described in here could happen in your family. It could happen in your workplace. That God opens people's hearts and they turn from whatever else they're trusting in to put their hope in Jesus. That could uh, that could happen in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our workplaces. And we can often write people off. Like, oh, they're just not interested. Or they're too far gone. They just don't like God. They kind of hate God. They hate the church. And so we might think they're hopeless. God could never save them. But Paul says, uh, I know you were chosen by God because you responded to this. And we can never see somebody uh, choose God 
unless we're willing to talk to them about the gospel. The second part of this passage is uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And this uh, describes, okay, Paul's getting into, you remember what we were like among you. And these verses describe what they did not do when they came to Thessalonica. What did Paul and his companions not do when they proclaimed the gospel? Chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And if we look back at verse 5, we already saw, he says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And now he's going to uh, start telling reminding them this is what we were like. And he introduces us to this issue going on that the Thessalonians are suffering at the hands of people in their city um, who've stuck with their old religion, with the the pagan gods. And those people are conducting this smear campaign against Paul, saying, Paul, like, why are you trusting that guy? This guy has tricked you. You've been duped. He's deceived you for his own gain with this new religion. And by the way, where is he now? He came in, he fooled you, and now he's left. And so, I mean, Jesus, trusting in Jesus was very new in this century. This was, you know, a whole new religion. And so this guy's come to town, he's deceived you. What are you doing? Like, why would you abandon our religion, our old gods? He's not even here to help you out. And so in chapter 2, he starts reminding them what he and his companions were like in Thessalonica. In verses 1 to 2, he says, you know, despite the suffering that we experienced in Philippi, we came and proclaimed the gospel to you. We had just suffered in Philippi. We came to Thessalonica, and we still proclaimed the gospel, and it wasn't in vain. We didn't just say it, and it fell on deaf ears. Something happened. Something happened that God did in your life. You turned to Him. It wasn't in vain. God reached on your life and changed you. He's reminding them. And so then, uh, what did they not do? Uh, verse 3 tells us one of the things. He says, uh, Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. And the, the rest of the verse will be a, another one. So, first of all, he says, our appeal doesn't spring from error or impurity or an attempt to deceive. Like, we aren't telling you lies. Like, we aren't, and we're not in error here. We've come and spoken the truth to you. And the rest of verse 4 tells us, uh, we spoke not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. So he didn't come in trying to, uh, get them to give him accolades or to build up his you know, respect for him. He didn't speak to please them. And this is proven by the fact, uh, by something else they didn't do. It says, we never came with words of flattery, nor with a pretext for greed. And I had to look up what pretext meant. It means stating one purpose, but really having a different purpose. So I might say to you, I'm, I'm giving this sermon to you because I love you but really I just want your money. So that's kind of what they're saying Paul did. He came into town, he gave me this little message, he's saying, you know, I care about you, God loves you, but really he just wants your money. That's what, he's kind of covering up his real purpose. And this would have been, you know, if you're interested in people's money, you will say things that they want to hear. You want to please them so that they will respond to you. And lastly, verse 6, he says, um, nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So we didn't seek their glory. We didn't seek their praise or approval. That's, we didn't do any of that stuff. And then, um, you know, it's not super uh, clear-cut, but verses 7 through 13 now describe what they did do when they proclaimed the gospel. 1 through 6 is what they didn't do. Verses 7 through 13 was what they did do. But if we go back to 1 through 6, we also see he said a couple things that they did there. Verse 2, he said, We had boldness in our God to declare you, to you the gospel of God in the midst of much affliction. 
they had boldness. Verse 4, they, had, they were approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. That's what we did. We were living for God's approval. In verse 4 it says, we spoke to please God who tests our hearts. In verses 7 through 13, give us more. Verse 7, he says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own child. And so he didn't come in to Thessalonica and start making demands like, Hey, you need to give us a good room to stay in. Hey, you need to pay us if you want to hear more of this. Hey, you need to you know, give us the honor that we're due. Instead, he says, we were like a nursing mother. We were taking care of you. It's the other way around. We didn't come to town saying, you take care of us. He said, we came to town taking care of you like a nursing mother, gentle with you. And then in verse 8, it says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And so you could say another thing they didn't do was they didn't only share the gospel, but they shared their own selves, that we we're ready to share with you the gospel and you know who we are, ourselves, because you become very dear to us. We didn't just share a message with you to impress you, to get your money, to con you. We didn't, we're not like these people are saying we are. We didn't come to get anything from you. We shared our very own selves with you, not just a fancy message. Then in verse 9, <clears throat> he says again, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And so we, we weren't greedy. We didn't come in after your money, making demands of you. No, look, you remember, we worked night and day because we didn't want to burden any of you. We provided for our own needs. And then in verse 10, he says, <clears throat> You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. Holy, righteous, blameless. We weren't deceptive. We weren't greedy. We weren't flattering you. We weren't acting like we deserve something from you. We weren't making demands. We're not making you pay for our service. We're not burdening any of you or asking you to provide for us. Look, we're holy, righteous, and blameless among you. You remember. And then verses 11 through 12, he says, For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This could be an interesting, uh, um, maybe both 7 and 8 for moms, and then verses 11 through 12 for dads. They're like, what does it look like to be a dad? What does it look like to be a mom? He says, like a father, his, his children, we exhorted you, and encouraged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So for Paul, it's, this was personal. This wasn't like a business transaction. I didn't come into town trying to make money off you, trying to you know, feel good about myself. I was like a mother with you. I was like a father with you. This is personal, relational. This isn't transactional. Then lastly, verse 13, he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So he reminds them, listen, our message we didn't make this up. We didn't come in with a fancy speech trying to impress people. And you didn't see it that way. You received it not as a message from men. You received it as a message from God. And that's what it really is. We didn't make this up. You saw it yourselves. God did a work in you. That word, that gospel, is in work in, at work in you and believers. In you believers. So these opponents in Thessalonica attacked Paul's message and attacked Paul 
as a messenger. They attack the message, saying it's full of error, it's deceptive. They attack his motives as a messenger, saying uh, he's greedy, he's looking for money, he wants glory, he wants you to praise him. They question his methods, saying he's using flattery, he's concealing his real motive here. Uh, he has a different purpose. The, Paul, he doesn't really care about you. He's just trying to get something from you, manipulating you. So they think this message is, you know, doesn't make any sense, is full of errors. And this messenger, look at the guy, look at his motives, look at his methods. But Paul reminds them about his message. He says, the gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, in full conviction. Verse 5, you received it, it fell upon you in a powerful way. And you didn't receive it as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, he says in chapter 2, verse 13. And then he says, you know, a messenger, in verse 5 he says, I want to remind you what kind of men we proved to be among you. For your sake, we were there for your sake. Remember what we were like. Don't listen to these opponents that are trying to get you to, to leave Jesus by saying this message and the messengers were off. So I want to bring up a quote which you've probably perhaps heard. Um, it's usually, uh, well, it always, I guess, always, I've seen it. It's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Does anybody know where I'm going with this? St. Francis of Assisi. The quote he's often said uh, to have said is, Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. The problem is there's no proof that St. Francis of Assisi ever said that. And if he did say it, I would argue he's wrong based on what the Bible tells us. Because um, the heart, we can commend the heart behind it. There's a heart behind it that uh, it speaks the importance of our actions as we interact with people. But it gives our actions too much power and it minimizes the power of the gospel in people's lives. And it, it's true that people can see what God is like by our actions and by our attitude. And but the problem is actions with no words are insufficient to bring someone to believe. Our actions do not actually preach the gospel. Your mouth preaches the gospel, not me giving you, you know, a dollar or you know, whatever money for you to pay for groceries. And Paul doesn't say our actions are at work in you. He says the word of God is at work in you. And the gospel, or the word, is the seed. And you can't see a seed grow unless you plant it. Remember the parable of the sower. Jesus doesn't say... I'm, you know, when he interprets the parable of the sower, you know, the farmer's going out and throwing his seed, he doesn't say, and now the seed stands for your actions. He says, no, the seed stands for the word, the word of God, the gospel, that the seed needs to be thrown in order for it to grow in someone's life. But what, as we said, there's a heart behind this, because remember, a doctor's bedside manner isn't going to heal you, right? I could have the nicest doctor in the world, you know, holds my hands, and, you know, whatever else, and it's like, he was so nice. I could still die because he doesn't know what he's doing. Um, and so our bedside manner with people is important. It's important how we treat people as we're telling them the gospel. That we don't want to just have uh, the, the knowledge and the skills to tell somebody about Jesus. We actually want to see something of Jesus in how we act. That So our, the, uh, the medicine we apply of the gospel needs to be brought along with good bedside manner uh, to, as we are talking to people about Jesus. And this is why our vision statement says that we want to both show and tell the gospel to every man, woman, and child. And I think 2.8, uh, chapter 2.8 is a good summary um, in Thessalonians. It says, uh, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. 
I think that's a good summary of what it looks like to show and tell. So the telling, they're talking to people about the good news of a God who has given of himself. He has shared of himself. For God so loved the world, uh, that he sent his only begotten son. God is sharing of himself. That's the gospel. God, the good news is we get God. and He's giving himself to us. But then showing is uh, Paul saying, we were sh- not only told you the gospel, but we were sharing and giving of our own selves. Just as our God is giving and sharing of his own self. And, and you can think of it as, in a way, we are God's show and tell to the world. God is showing the world what he is like by changing our character. But God is also telling the world what he is like um, through our words of telling people the gospel. And so both the message and the messenger are important. The messenger is someone sent by God, approved by God, entrusted with the gospel by God, living to please God, acting um, for other people's benefit, out of love, trusting in God's word and power to save and the reality is, if we aren't like that as a messenger, that I've been sent by God, I'm living for his approval, we can't really love our neighbors. We can't really love anyone in our life. You can't love your neighbor by living for their approval or living to please them. You can't love your family by living for their approval or living to please them. You have to say, I'm a messenger from God, I'm living for his approval and his glory. But then there's also the message, the good news about Jesus. It's from God, not from people. And the message is what must be heard in order for someone to be saved and transformed. But at the same time, the message is delivered through a messenger, and the messenger gives both visibility and credibility to the message. The messenger gives both visibility and credibility to the message. Because we may tell someone this message, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. But this message won't make much sense if the messenger isn't very loving, it's going to be a lot harder to receive. God can still use it. It's like, do we want God to work uh, because of our obedience, or do we want him to work in spite of our disobedience? And it's like, God can do it both ways. He doesn't need our obedience. He doesn't need us to be super loving in order to change someone's life through the gospel. Paul even says at the beginning of Philippians 1, people are preaching the gospel for wrong motives, but he says, that's fine. The gospel's still getting out. But, of course, we'd rather someone to be preaching or you know, us to be sharing the gospel with right motives and in a loving way. And so if the messenger is talking about a message of God's love, but they aren't loving at all, that's going to be hard to receive that message because our life makes the audible gospel visible. It's words, but then people can see it, how it's transformed us, how it's changed us, and to be an ambassador, someone who represents Jesus to people. And our, our life ought to reflect the gospel we proclaim. And there's one... Um, pastor that I lived a while ago, he said, we don't want to unsay our words with our actions. Make sense? We don't want to unsay. God loves you as we're like, you know, taking that person to court. You know, we don't want to unsay our words with our actions of like, your words don't make any sense based on how you're treating me. So, you know, it's not working. And so, telling without showing will make our message lack credibility. But showing without telling is unable to save anyone. And sadly, many today have rejected the message of Christ because of the behavior uh, of Christians that are misrepresenting Christ. I mean, uh, there's like this thing I was shown in seminary where it was like the pe- questions people were asking 50 years ago of like, they're all like logical reason questions of like, you know, how do we know God exists and what about suffering and, you know, whatnot. There are all these questions that are kind of like mental, rational thinking through it. And a lot of the questions people are asking today is like, why should I go to church and all they want is my money? And why would I go be part of a church to help my marriage. The divorce rate is just as bad there. So it's all these questions about the messenger, not so much 
the message anymore because today, I mean, in the last, I don't know how many years, five years, there's been just scandal after scandal of scandal, whether it's um, greed scandals or sexual scandals or people committing spiritual abuse against their parishioners just being kind of jerks. And these, these things uh, make people question, like, you're preaching a message of a, a Savior who's loving, sacrificing himself, gentle and kind, but you people don't look anything like that. So why would I believe this message? It doesn't seem to be doing anything for you. And so the messenger can be a turnoff for the message. So looking back at the neighborhood map, just consider the situation that Paul walked into in Thessalonica. These people had grown up with a religion completely different from Christianity. Probably never heard of Christianity because this is like within the first 20 years of Christianity beginning. They didn't even have the Jewish roots that told them they should be looking for a Messiah. Paul's usual pattern was, I'm going to go to the synagogue. All these people are reading the Old Testament, so they're all waiting for a Messiah, and I'm going to tell them the Messiah has come. They don't even have that advantage. These people are worshipping all the Greek gods or Roman gods or whatever, whatever it is. They have a whole different religious system, a whole different set of gods. And Paul walks in there. Jesus isn't even on his radar, but Paul and his companions come into town talking to people about Jesus as the Lord of the world, and God worked through that. He brought people to faith. He transformed them. Just imagine if uh, you had never heard the name Jesus. Somebody comes in and says, Hey Vince, I want to tell you about a guy who's the Lord of the world. What are you talking about? The Lord? It's such a weird thing to say, right? But Paul goes in and starts talking to them about it. He's, he's the Lord of the universe. He came from God. He died for you. I mean, consider this now. We have the same God today. We have the same Jesus whom these people put their faith and hope today. We have the same good news about Jesus. We have the same spirit to open people's hearts. The same God who worked 20 years in Thessalonica after Jesus' death and resurrection can work in the exact same way now 2,000 years after his death and resurrection. And what this means is that this could happen today. This could happen in your neighborhood. This could happen in your family. This could happen in your workplace. And when I was reading this passage, it just... I got excited thinking like, yeah, all these people I met at Starbucks are all these neighbors and they could hear the gospel word, you know, they could hear it and this could happen. It could just, the spirit would come on them, give them full conviction to see Jesus is really who you're saying he is. He really did die for my sins on that tree, on that cross. He was paying for my sins. It wasn't just some dude that got killed by the Roman Empire. That was for me. And yes, I want to trust in him and hope in him. And that can happen in our families, in our workplaces, anywhere. And we might think, you know, that neighbor wouldn't be interested in this. That neighbor is so busy with work. That neighbor, I know they, they party and drink a lot. That neighbor is committed to another religion. They're really involved in it. Or that neighbor hates God. You know, something happened to them. And now they just hate God and blame him for it. And we so often will say no for people. I'm talking for myself, too, that I so often say no for people. So, okay, let's check out who here do I think would maybe be willing to hear this. And it's like, I really don't know who would be willing to hear it. If Paul assists the situation in Thessalonica, it's like, eh, all these people have their own religion, they never heard of Jesus, they're not interested in it, they don't have a Bible, they you know, drink, even you know, Peter talks about in the letter, his letter talks about, you know, all these people, they have this wild lifestyle, and now they're criticizing you for not joining in on it. So Paul could walk in and be like, you're all, you know, you're sitting outside, I don't know what it would actually look like, but you're sitting on the side of the road, holding your beer can, and he's like, they're not going to be interested. Oh, that person just got out of the pagan temple worship. They're not going to be interested. But he just goes in and says it, and these people come to believe. And God works through the proclamation of his word. 
And God did something powerful in this city through messengers bringing His message. And He can do the same thing today as we're sent out, His messengers, with His message. And you know, it's cool for me to think about, uh, you know, we are Good News Church. And seven years ago, we've been here for six and a half years, seven years ago this did not exist, us sitting in this room, talking, thinking about Jesus, worshiping Jesus, going out to tell other people about Jesus. This whole thing didn't exist. But God brought us together by his good news. Some of us were Christians before. Some of us weren't Christians before. Some of us were wandering away from the church and God. And he brought people together around his good news. We didn't exist before. And now we live here to see lives transformed for that good news as well. And we, to see it happen, we have to commit to both showing and telling the gospel to our neighbors, not just our neighbors, but every man, woman, and child that we come across. We're commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves. And the only way we can love them is if we show and tell. And so you might ask, well, how can we do that? And you know, the good news is you don't have to, the good news is Jesus, but you don't have to add any more to what we've already been learning. We've been learning these blessed steps uh, on, at Gospel Community Nights. I don't know if I've, um, how many, when the last time I talked about it on a Sunday was, but you know, think about, we show and tell the good news about Jesus through blessing them. And those steps are begin with prayer, praying for your neighbors, praying for your family, Listening, listening to people with care, asking questions and listening. Eating with people, like whatever it is, a party, you're having people over for dinner, or just hanging out in some way. Serving, serving people in your life, allowing them to serve you. The last one is sharing, sharing your story of what God's done in your life, or sharing the, the gospel story. And sometimes it helps me to think in this way, because, you know, okay, I'm pastor of Good News Church, but... What would it be like if I thought of myself as the pastor of my neighborhood? What would it be like if I thought about myself as the pastor of Starbucks and all these people there? Um, or a chaplain, you might think of chaplains as people that help with the police or at a hospital. It's like, okay, chaplain, you're in charge of this hospital wing. And so all those people are under that person's care. What would, it, what would it be like if you were to consider yourself, I'm the chaplain of this neighborhood. I'm the pastor of this neighborhood. You're the shepherd of these people. You're the you're the pastor of your neighborhood, your workplace, your family. And so you pray for them. You ask questions of them and listen with care. You welcome people to the neighborhood and into your home. You serve with love. And all of this is sharing yourself. And you also share the gospel and the story of how God has worked in your life. And the prayer is what Paul talks about here. It's like what happened in Thessalonica is like somebody threw a rock into a pond and now it's rippled out and all these people are hearing about it. And what would it be like if that house in the middle of that neighbor map, that's you. And what if what God is doing in your life and doing in your neighborhood is just rippling out from your house to other people? And he, kind of, he says the words, the gospel went forth. And he uses another word that's kind of like the gospel, verse 8, it sounded forth. It's like this thing that's just rippling out. What would it be like if, you know, as a church, we gather in Woodstock, but you know, I don't even know if half the people, you guys don't live in Woodstock, you don't live in it's like half of us don't even live in Woodstock. It's this county or this around. But what if what we're doing here in Woodstock or in our houses or neighborhoods, that was just rippling out into this county and into, the, into Chicago land. Or even as we are helping Brian Herman go uh, on his missionary uh, venture, that it's rippling out, out to there as well. And I was reading a book. I was stop with this, end with this one final thought yesterday. Uh, as I was reading it, it just seemed like it was really applicable to today. And 
the beauty of the gospel is heard in telling it to people. And the beauty of the gospel is seen in the showing of it to people in Christian community. That is, we commit to this Jesus as we forgive each other, as we love each other, as we are filled with joy. People see, that's beautiful. Where did that come from? And it's like, well, because we have this beautiful message that is at the center of all we do that's affecting our lives. We'd love for you to hear it too. And the beauty of the gospel, we see it in the church community primarily, not primarily in us as relationships, although it can come out that way too, but as a community, as we invite people in, as we serve and as we do things, that people see that's there's something beautiful here, and you're talking about something beautiful, and they're drawn to that. Let's pray. God, thank you that you did this work in Thessalonica, and that you tell us it was by your word. It was the strategy of what Paul and his companions did really isn't very discussed. It just talks about what they were like and what they talked about. And so, Lord, would you take your good news, would you plant it deep in our hearts, and would you grow fruit in our lives? Would you make us into the kinds of messengers that really represent what you're like to people? And would you give us courage to share your good news with those people as well? That we're not just sharing ourselves, we're sharing your good news, we're saying that this is who has made a difference in my life and is still making a difference. In the name we pray, amen.